Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, the man who called the tech sell-off has an even bigger warning for the market. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson will be here to tell us just how bad he thinks this sell-off could get. Plus, Sears waving the white flag, filing for bankruptcy. Is the downfall of the great American icon a warning for other retailers or maybe a cautionary tale of mismanagement? We've got all the details. But first, we start off with the make or break moment for the market as it remains under pressure. Earnings season. Will it be earnings season to the rescue? The season kicking into full gear this week as the market fights back against rising rates, trade woes, and higher input costs as inflation fears threaten to become a reality. So is a gangbuster earnings season enough to crush all of these worries and can earnings season really reignite this rally guy that's the hope and but it's not just earnings season i think earnings are going to be fine i think it's just what they say going forward which is going to be important and i'm not convinced that companies are going to give great guidance going forward one of the reasons because they probably can't second reasons because they don't have to in this environment so i think that's what we're up against i think the wild card for the market though continues to be if president trump and china can pull off some trade agreement I think that would be extraordinarily bullish, at least in the short term. So I think the market has to hope for that or maybe hope for a Fed that sort of backs off and gets a little more dovish, although long term, I think that's bad. Those are the two things I would put ahead of earnings because, although, again, I think earnings would be good. I don't think it's enough. So it's a no. They yeah. will not well, reignite no. this route. No, no, no. I just want to make sure. I, hey, let's play again. I'm just no. trying to bottom to line you, this for the viewers. Grasso. No. See, there you oh, go. I forgot and why, Nothing trumps rates. Nothing trumps rates. This okay. was about a rate sell-off, mm-hmm. not about anything else, not about earnings. Netflix, the most important print of the earnings season. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. We'll wow. know tomorrow. Cool. Really? Well, I, I agree with Steve, uh, at least on the rate side. I'm not sure if it's the most important for the, the entire season. And I agree with Guy that I think there's a lot of uncertainty. But remember, we were doing this after Q1 and we were doing this after Q2. Each one of these quarters, earnings were supposed to save this market. And actually, you know, at certain times, they actually did. So when it comes down to it, people are going to look at valuations. They're going to look at where the S&P is on a, on, a, on a relative basis to itself and where it is in a Fed hiking environment and say, actually, these multiples look OK. Um, I do believe that China is not going to be reconciled. Every headline on China should be one that's, if it's bullish, that should be one to be faded. But I do think that there are numbers within the earnings season that are going to matter a lot, and there are sectors that are going to outperform. And, and, you know, look at Staples so far. I realize that it hasn't been a great show, but the outlook to me for companies who rely on commodity prices and who would have concerns on trade hasn't been awful. Yeah. Karen? Well, I think the Fed absolutely has to continue with the rate rise, the rate rising plan, regardless of some volatility in the market. So I hope that the market really still expects that. I think that it reflects the expectation of another hike. And we'll see for next year. I don't think that that should be the catalyst for the sell-off, for a sell-off. I really don't. The Fed won't be the catalyst for the sell-off. Isn't- I think, you know, the bad news, good news question, if the Fed stops. Uh-huh. That yeah, but is it, the question is, do earnings overpower the rate fears that the market is if they're experiencing good, yes. right now? I think if they're good, yes, they do. And if, if they're, not, if they're, they're bad, not. if we hear, I mean, if we hear from corporations with their guidance for 2019 that things are looking slow, 
that there is a distinct slowdown in the consumer that, you know. Oh, that's going to be terrible. That will be terrible. <laughs> does, does, does that cause yeah, a Fed to pause? No, absolutely not. It, it, it no. gives them cover in this market anymore. Yeah, but by Tim, the way, there Tim does it be. give them cover? It gives them cover if they would like to skip. I think they could skip one cycle if the earnings are terrible or if the guidance is terrible. The earnings are not going to be terrible. I, guidance might be terrible. I just think that the, the, you know, the Fed is staring at a couple dynamics that I, I think they haven't seen in a while. I, I think we're starting to get that Phillips curve. Remember the relationship between unemployment uh, and inflation? And it's starting to, starting to wake up. The ECB, of all people, is actually talking about that. Uh, but I, I, I just think we have core PPI. We actually have energy prices that are higher. Um, we're seeing this trickle through. This labor force is as tight as we've, I would argue, Why we've ever Why can't the Fed seen. just skip one round? You know what we never talk about? $50 billion per month coming off the Fed's balance sheets. But that, you're, you say that like it's a surprise. Like do, they, does anyone, do, but like they, if you like look they, at the yield curve, it's been happening and escalating. This, and by the way, this is where $50 billion starts. So you're it saying it's been tightening on its own even without the Fed. Yeah. It started yeah. $10 yeah. billion exactly. a month. But they've been telegraphing right. that. They have been telegraphing that. We don't talk about years. doing both the tightening. This is double Just tightening at this point. don't talk about it doesn't mean it's a surprise. But the market, we, we all act surprised that is the, uh, rates rising for the right reasons. But we we still have negative real rates, Steve. We're still at neutral at best. And, I, you know, the Fed needs to get to a place where actually, you know, real rates offer people something. But right now, we're not even at an equilibrium. Right now, they, you know, they've taken accommodative out of their wording. But the bottom line here is this is not, this is not policy that, that's, that's restrictive right now. I have not a question yet. for you guys. Show of hands, please. Mm, okay. Thank you. Will, well, earnings season, will, er, in. will earnings season be a reason or, or ca- could earnings season be an input as to whether or not the Fed raises interest rates? Show of hands. Yes. Well, well, I'm closing season, my eyes. Is well, anyone else raising their hand? Well, earnings you're so out there by yourself. The by the you're way, the only one. You, you're though. the only one. Yeah. So let's say guidance guy, comes in really badly. The Fed stays on its listen, path. Listen, I mean, it's been about input. Inflation has been the reason companies are saying the input costs are going up. That's I, why I don't some companies. That. But that's some companies have said, well, okay. Let's put it this way. It should not, to answer your question, it shouldn't be. The market should have nothing to do with it. Now, whether it does or not, I have no idea. But to your point, real rates in this country are flat. You can make a compelling argument that in the greatest They're economy negative. in the history. They're negative. Negative. They're and negative. we should and, have a 5% And real Fed inflation. Funds. Real inflation is not scary, right? Five-year, 10-year break-evens, they're not scary. So if we're Look, raising. I, I think, I think our, our, your father's, my father's inflation, in other words, inflation of yesteryear is something that I think was scarier than possibly the prospect of what we are looking at now. I do think there are deflationary forces out there that ultimately could make this a very different dynamic. The Fed is looking at PCE. They don't see PCE as being anywhere close to overheating. And that's, you know, these are some of the smartest economists in the world. Can we so show an after-hours chart of Adobe? Because that stock is spiking. Um, good guidance in the after-hours session. So we, you can sort of pick your, your poison in terms of guidance that we're seeing. Here we go, up 5.5%. Guy, what did you make of this? And do you think that this is any sort of extrapolation? I haven't, I, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't read it, so I can't, I can't look at it and speak intelligently about it. What I'll tell you is Adobe probably topped out around $285, and you've seen a pretty precipitous decline. I'll go back and read now, but maybe this is just sort of a bounce back off a day when it's down 4.5%. We basically just got back, I think, what we lost today. All right. Our next guest made a pretty prescient call about the markets. He warned about the markets when he was on the show at the beginning of the month. Take a listen. The breadth of the technology sector has been pretty weak over the last four to five, six weeks. I think we're going to see more, more names kind of fall off in October. And I think that's what portfolio managers should be really focused on right now. Make sure that what you do have in the portfolio today is something you feel very good about going through earnings season with. Now he says the sell-off is about to get even worse. Let's bring in Mike Wilson, chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. Why worse? Why wasn't that it? 
Well, I mean, it, it's in process, okay? Yeah. So the things we've been looking for, rates going up too high, putting a cap on valuation in the most rich parts of the market, which is tech, growth stocks, some of the small caps, uh, that's beginning. Uh, and by the way, unless rates come down, we're capped, right? So I think that that's, to me, that's the issue here today is that what are you playing for at this point at the index level, right? It's, it's getting harder. 2780 is kind of as far as we can go unless you want to bet on, you know, bet on another melt-up, okay? So uh, it, it's going it's to get worse because of liquidity. I, what Steve said is spot on, okay, which is that the, the QE, the QT, okay, is what people are underestimating. I agree with you, Karen. It's not a surprise, but the problem is, is that we finally flipped. So the combination of QT accelerating, ECB, by the way, started tapering on October 1st, and this is the blackout period for share buybacks. So all three of those has created less liquidity in the marketplace at a time when we need more demand for supply. And that's why rates spiked. Mm -hmm. So now you're kind of in a bad situation. So this could go on for another couple of weeks in that regard. So where does earnings fit into your yeah. calculus? So earnings are important, obviously. Um, I think earnings are going to be fine. I don't think there's going to be, like, this is not going to be a disappointing earnings season. Guidance is a wild card. We wrote a note last week about margins. We're very, uh, you know, skeptical about margins next year. The question is, will, client, will companies actually talk about that in this earnings season? I don't know. But even on a good earnings print, my biggest concern is that they just fade it. Okay, so Netflix reports tomorrow night. Uh, I don't know if it's the most important one, but it's important because this is a classic uh, stock where there isn't a lot of valuation support. Meaning, like nobody really knows what this thing is is worth. Okay, we can we can kind of make up a number. Okay, and if, if they put up a really good number and the stock sells off, that I think that's going to be the a test bad of signal. faith. In other words, well, I think what's going to do is people are going to start wondering, okay, what other expensive stocks yeah. do I have that I need to de-risk? And we've seen a lot of that already. The good news is like these mid-cap software companies which is arguably the most egregious part of the marketplace, they have derated. I mean, they've come down 10, 15, 20% in some cases. So it's in process. I don't think it's worse, but it's in process. So I, I hear your cap on, on the market near term, yeah. but, but how about a real fallout? Because I think that's what more people are looking at. They looked at the velocity of last yeah. week's move and, and are very scared right now. Do you think this market has the ability to pull back even with very strong earnings and in a dramatic way? I think because of the liquidity picture, it can easily go back to 2600, 2650. And we're still in a bull market, so it's not like it's the end of the world. But, and, and look, at least people are thinking about that now. Two weeks ago, that wasn't even a topic of conversation. It was like, well, oh, you know, we got earnings coming up, and oh, by the way, you know, it, it, yeah. we made new highs every week. So I think that just the skepticism alone is, is a healthier setup. So bottom line for us, in terms of it, the sell-off being in process, mm -hmm. how long is that process, yeah. <laughs> and how deep is that sell-off? So let's go back to the, the real narrative we've had all year, which is this is a rolling bear market where you've kind of gone through all these different sectors. and We're into the last phase, okay? U.S. stocks, U.S. growth stocks in particular, small-cap stocks are finally getting it. I think another 10% in that space, you know, that maybe 15 in some of the names, okay, will be it. That could take us down to 2,600, maybe 2,500 if it gets really nasty, okay? And that'll probably be the it for the rolling bear market, okay? And that, that, that'll probably be a good place to start buying. Another 10 or 15% in the growthier areas of the market, yeah. namely technology. Do we see a commensurate rise in the value sectors of the market? Well, that's the thing. That. I mean, we've no. been favoring value over growth because yeah. it's just going down less. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, it's a moral victory. There are names for sure. Look, you, you all pick stocks, okay? There are names to buy. And, and look, this is... There's been a lot of damage this year already, and some bargains have been created. Okay, but right now we're having a right now we're having more of a market event. This liquidity situation is more of a market event, mm -hmm. and so it's it's just hard to pick stocks in that kind of an environment too. So it's going to be tricky in here in the next couple of weeks for sure. 
Mike, thank you. Mike well, Wilson of Morgan Stanley. What are the, the names that you could buy in your view? I think, you know, look, you look at Facebook, for example. I mean, did it make all the way move back to 150 or so when Zuckerberg testified on Capitol Hill in, this, in the spring? Yeah, so maybe that gets interesting. I mean, Google's had a pretty precipitous decline. I think Netflix and earnings is pretty cool. You mentioned Adobe. But I'm sort of with Mike on this. I think the path of least resistance and the pain trade is lower. And I'll mention one other thing. Look at today's action. Not a big deal. The S&P closes down 10 handles. But went from 10 handles down to 10 handles up to 10. Close below the 200 for two out of the last three days. Which is a big days. deal. I mean, and, I think that's, you know. But the low intraday has been 20 handles higher. So the low has, we've been making a series. Granted, it's a handful of days. But we've made a series of higher lows intraday. What do you do if Netflix sells off, if a decent number sells off? I, I think I'll, I'll pose it the other way. What happens okay. if it's not such a great number and it rallies? Then that's a buy signal for the market. I think that market is saying to you. I sell that scenario. I sell that scenario. I don't know about I mean, that. I, I, look, Mike's point is that you had these high multiple stocks that are found. And by the way, he talked about mid cap. And, and this is definitely not. This is mega cap. I think these multiples are tough to buy in a growth environment that has less growth. All right, coming up, it is the death of an American icon. Sears finally waving the white flag, but could it be a red flag for the other retailers? The Chartmaster will break it down. Plus, pot stocks going wild today. Has it shaping up to be a big week for weed as Canada is uh, steps away from full legalization? So which stocks could benefit the most? The Cannabis King lays out America's reefer roadmap. That's Tim, by the way. And later, the market sell-off has taken no prisoners, but Steve Grasso here says this baby has been thrown out with the bathwater. He'll tell us the one name he says is a buy after a 25% sell-off. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. The whole world is watching as Saudi Arabia gets ready to explain exactly what happened to a Washington Post journalist at its embassy. Eamon Javert is in Washington, D.C. with all the details. Eamon. Yeah, Melissa, that's right. President Trump is touring some of the hurricane damage in Georgia right now. He just stopped at a Red Cross facility to take some questions from reporters. And one of the questions he got was about reports that have surfaced in a number of media outlets over the past hour or so that the Saudis could be on the verge of uh, explaining what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi reporter uh, who has been missing since he went to the Saudi consulate uh, uh, he, since he went to the Saudi consulate and disappeared, uh, the president said he's unaware of what the Saudi plans are, said those reports are effectively rumors, and he said he's tasked his secretary of state with getting to the bottom of all of it. Here's what he said. Well, I'm really sending him just to find out uh, really firsthand what happened, what they know, 
what's going on. He may go to Turkey, he may not. He may meet with all of them together, but we want to find out what happened. And he's got instructions to find out what happened. The president also said that the Treasury Secretary, Steven Mnuchin, uh, is going to consider his options. He said that Mnuchin is still planning uh, to go to a big business conference later this week uh, in Saudi Arabia. But he said that the Treasury Secretary has until the end of the week to decide, and he's going to weigh his decision based on what they find out in terms of new information here. So the United States side uh, clearly looking for some more information. The president saying, Melissa, uh, that he doesn't really know what to make of these reports, that the Saudis uh, may be on the verge of admitting uh, that they had some responsibility here, that this was an interrogation gone wrong that ended in the death of Jamal Khashoggi. So uh, not clear exactly where we stand right now on the U.S. side looking for some more information, Melissa. Okay, Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers with the latest from Washington. And uh, we bring this up because we did see the market take a leg lower right around the time those headlines crossed this afternoon. That was about 3 o'clock. We lost about 25 points on the S&P 500. The chaos surrounding Saudi Arabia, could it be a growing threat to the U.S. stock market. And we'll throw oil in there. We didn't see much throw of a reaction oil. to oil, but higher oil could be a real problem. Throw oil, throw that they hold almost $170 billion of treasuries. And, and you know, this is something that as people worry about. Peter Bookfort brought that up in his notes this morning. I think it's very smart. I mean, at a time when people are worried about rates, you know, could there be some kind of a pullback there? I think the energy market actually is one of the places that investors need to continue to look to in the fourth quarter. I think you're, you're seeing actually the year-over-year comps look fantastic for a lot of these companies. They're being run differently. They're being run for equity investors. And I would argue that cap numbers are, are lean and mean. Um, so, no, I, I don't, you know, I realize the energy prices, Mel, have been feeding through to some of these, these inflation reads we've been getting, but you strip them out like we did in retail sales today, and you actually see that people are, are, are not giving any there, ground. There shouldn't be any supply-demand issues with this event. I don't think that's what Tim is saying. But if you have no supply-demand, then that shouldn't affect oil. Oil didn't really respond to it uh, as a tailwind or a bullishness in the oil markets. I think this gets blown over. Saudi Arabia is a tremendous ally. I think it gets blown over in a matter of days, not weeks. At the same, we have a lot of those, uh, you know, the Davos in the desert. That's what the event is being built. We've got a lot of executives pulling out. I mean, the yeah, U.S. could want to maintain diplomatic relationships with Saudi Arabia, but it's corporate America that could decide otherwise effectively. So I, yeah, and in, in those veins, I think it could be a market negative. Let's put it this way. It's not a market positive, right? So it either does blow over in a couple days or it escalates. And I think there's a relatively decent chance that it escalates. I mean, is that a legitimate excuse as to what happened? I mean, I'm not certain that is the case. I don't know what happened. Let's say that we, they deny it and we get nothing further from that. I don't know what we do. What's our response? I think that's Steve's scenario where it kind of blows over. But stranger yeah. things have happened. I mean, look at Turkey. Look how Turkey turned into a much bigger deal um, because we saw the contagion effects, but it, it really... Right, but they weren't it, as, as big an ally. There's always the, the leadership there is a lot different than Saudi. I, I would argue that Turkey is geopolitically right in there with Saudi Arabia for the United States. Okay. For more on Saudi Arabia and the growing threat, head over to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. There's more, more, your life, more for your life at Sears. Actually, there's not much left at Sears after the company filed for bankruptcy today. But the traders think other retailers could benefit, and we'll tell you which ones. Plus, how cool. Is this not only cool, but come Wednesday, legal in Canada. We'll tell you which stocks are poised to heat up when Fast Money returns. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. It is the end of an era. Iconic American retailer Sears filing for bankruptcy, finally waving the white flag. Courtney Reagan's at headquarters with the details and latest reactions. Court. Hi, Melissa. So for many, it wasn't if, but when Sears would file for bankruptcy. Today is when, after seven years of losing money. CEO Eddie Lampert has kept Sears afloat with a number of complicated financial engineering maneuvers for a long time now, until today's debt payment was finally just too much to cover. While many of today's shoppers won't remember a robust Sears, many others, including President Trump, remember when it was the country's largest retailer. Sears Roebuck, when I was growing up, was the big deal. And it's very sad what happened. Very, very sad. When you look at that whole filing that they did last night, to me is very sad. Somebody that is of my generation, Sears Roebuck was a big deal. So it's very sad to see. Some of the trouble began when Sears and Kmart merged in 2005, then the financial crisis hit. But ultimately, Sears didn't invest in stores or e-commerce to keep up with retail's transformation. Shares have lost nearly all their value, which equates to more than $14 billion in market cap. There are 3,361 fewer stores now than at the 2011 peak and 307,000 fewer employees than in 1980. But 68,000 jobs are still at risk today. Still, famed investor Carl Icahn wonders if the bonds have any value. Obviously, there's a lot of problems there. And, and you know, now it's in bankruptcy, and, and maybe some of the bonds will be interesting. We're taking a look at some of them. Now, for malls, Sears bankruptcy could actually be positive. Stephen Leibovitz, CEO of shopping center operator CBL and Associates, told me it's been really difficult to lease around Sears for years. And he said one example of a redeveloped former Sears in its shopping centers is generating four to five times the rent that Sears was paying. Pre-CEO Joseph Cordino says former Sears locations at its shopping centers are generating about nine times Sears rents. Wow. Melissa. Big difference. Thanks, Court. So is Sears waving the white flag, a red flag for re other retailers? Let's get to uh, Chartmaster Carter Braxtonworth at the Plasma to break it all down. Hey, Carter. I, I don't suspect Sears has anything to do with other retailers. It's its own issue, its own problem. But what uh, it is, of course, is how the mighty do fall. I thought we'd do a little history, and then uh, let's talk about Amazon. So uh, what I have here is, of course, uh, some of the all-time greats. Of course, Woolworths is the greatest retailer uh, in its era. Sears eclipsed Woolworths in the 20s. Walmart, of course, in 1991 took that long to get bigger than Sears. And Amazon, while not bigger than Amazon, only half in terms of revenues, it's, it's the big player. Um, what I have here is the, uh, the, the headcount, um, U.S. population, and then their peak employment. Peak employment for uh, Woolworths is the 1950s, uh, Sears, uh, 1980s. And uh, interesting, of course, that obviously Walmart is the one um, that has and still does uh, the biggest percent of the U.S. Uh, population. So moving on, um, what we have here is the head count or store count uh, at their peak, Woolworths 2,800. Again, this is around the 50s. Sears 3,500, uh, Walmart 11,000. Now, Amazon 600, and you could say, well, what do you mean? Um, of course, that's asterisk there is talking about Whole Foods. And as we know, Walmart, uh, excuse me, Amazon has opened some new concept stores, three of them, and probably that's going to get bigger. So history repeats. In terms of market cap, so Woolworths is still around, but basically it's Foot Locker, 
um, and it's uh, six billion. Sears, thirty-five uh, million on its way to zero, of course. Um, Walmart, two hundred seventy-five, and then Amazon, the big player, at, at eight sixty-one. In terms of revenues, you can see the numbers, and this is the really interesting part. Of course, Amazon at some point presumptively will get bigger than Walmart, but it's nowhere near, even though it's more than three times its size and market cap. All right, XRT. It's a great ETF. It's equal weight. It's got all of those stocks in it, plus about 90 others. And what we know, to be fair, is that there was a well-defined uptrend and that we have now broken that trend. So the issue, of course, is this. Are we going to just consider this a little okay and we're going to get back above, or is something else going on? I think something else has gone on. It's a break in trend, and the bigger risk, of course, is that there's downside from here. Um, closed very poorly on the day. Amazon, 2014 to 2018, a perfect uptrend. It's had drawdowns, as you know. Here are those drawdowns. You can see them. Down 16, down 22, down 32, down 16, 14, and this recent one, down 18. How much could this continue? Let's put in the trend line. Here is the trend line that's been in effect, essentially which XRT has just broken, of course, for the past three, four years. I think at a minimum that we get down to trend. So we're down again about 16, 17, 18. I think there's more to go. Amazon is not exempt from the rules of markets, which is to say even great uptrends are characterized by counter-trend sell-offs. And I think you're probably the one that's currently underway is not quite finished. Come on over, Carter. Come on over. <laughs> Stephanie will bring the chair in. Thank you, Steph. Sorry, <laughs> whistling the Carol Burnett song. It's, just it's whistling. very, very, very catchy. It's, it's super I mean, catchy. Just, wow. It's just Sorry one about of those that. Things. Good um, times. Are there retailers within XRT that you like? There are. I mean, Burlington looks pretty good. TJX, uh, pretty good. Um, I, I think the issue is this: if you were to look at what we know, the consumer discretionary sector has been so good, but the equal weight consumer discretionary is basically unchanged on the year. So that the high-flying names like Home Depot and Amazon have driven the performance at the sector level. But under the surface, there's a lot of damage. We know there are things that are horrific, like Bed Bath & Beyond, yes, making new 52-week uh, lows and practically all-time lows. So, Carter, when these high flyers trade, the FANG stocks when they trade, and you see the Amazon trading, and you have Netflix tomorrow, does that affect your dynamic when you look for your bottoming out in Amazon, if Netflix has a great earnings or a great earnings reaction, does that enough to lift Amazon and the rest of that space? Sure. So not so much a bottoming out, right, because it's just a correction right. in an uptrend. But when the give back might be over, if Netflix is good, I guess you're inferring, would that also give a lift or some footing to Amazon? The stocks were traded the same. We know that, right? There's, it's of a type, idiosyncratic growth. But I'm not sure in this instance the Netflix results, whatever they might be, if they're good, will impact Amazon, where I would think that if they're unhappy and there's poor price action, it would affect Amazon. How does the RTH look, which is very obviously Amazon, Walmart, big cap heavy? Right. I mean, so let's take FANG. I mean, it's the same. I mean, FANG is down 20 percent, peak to trough. And the indices that are dominated by the heavy cap names, basically the issue that we all have to decide is this, because there's only two things. There's only two kinds of weakness. Weakness to take advantage of and weakness to stay away from. There's a weakness in Sears is weakness to stay away from, yeah? Bed, bath, beyond. Certain stocks, it's weakness to take advantage of. So like in Kohl's and other names, I think the dips are an opportunity, whereas other stocks, they're not, uh, Tiffany being one. 
Carter, thank you. Thanks. Carter Worth of Cornerstone Macro. Well, options traders are betting on a turnaround for one big box name. Let's get, a, get to Mike Cohen in San Francisco for all the details. Mike. Yeah, so Carter mentioned this name. We were looking at Home Depot today, which did trade above average call volume. In fact, calls outpaced puts by about four to one. And where we saw the most opening activity were the November 195 calls. When I was looking at these earlier today, over 7,700 of them had traded for just under $5. And buyers of those are making bullish bets that it's going to get through that 195 strike price by about the five bucks that they paid or above 200 by November expiration. And I would mention that this does happen to capture earnings, which we expect them to report on the 13th. They're implying a move of about 3% right now. How are you feeling about Home Depot these days, Guy? It's off about 11 12% from the all-time high. As Mike mentioned, November 13th, 18 and a half times forward earnings, maybe in this environment rich, but I think Home Depot in earnings sets up pretty well. All right, thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, uh, check out the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Still ahead. Pot stocks are ablaze as deals in the space heat up, and there's two key events in the next few weeks that could take these stocks even higher. Our cannabis king, Tim Seymour, will break it down. Plus, Steve Grasso stepping up to the plate, getting ready to pitch one stock that's down nearly 30% from its high hit earlier this month. What has him so bullish? You can find out when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's been a tough month so far for the markets uh, as some of America's most loved stocks got thrown out like a baby with the bathwater. Bob Sani is at the, has all the details with the New York Stock Exchange. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. Some real notable decliners. It's been a rough week and a half, particularly for a group of stocks known as high beta names. Take a look here. Big Dow decliners in that time period include Caterpillar, Boeing, Visa, 3M, and Apple. These five stocks account for 600 of the 1,500-point decline in the Dow in the last week and a half. What they have in common is that they're all high beta, high volume stocks. That is, they have the highest sensitivity to market movements. So when the S&P is down, say, 1% in a day, a stock like Boeing will be down 1.4%. Caterpillar might be down 1.5%, bigger. A basket of these high beta stocks are already down 9% in just the last week and a half. By contrast, low, vol low volatility stocks that tend to have more muted price movements are down only 3%. That would include Walgreens, Verizon, McDonald's, and Coke, consumer staple names, all with much smaller declines. Walgreens, by the way, is the only stock that's up in the last week and a half in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It wasn't just high beta names in the Dow that dropped. Big cap semiconductors are classic high beta names. They all got sold hard. So NVIDIA is down 18%, Applied Materials 14%, Qualcomm 12%, KLA 10 Core down 11%. And here's another group, payment stocks. Another group took a major hit in the last week and a half. And I'm not just talking about Visa. Square, for example, down 24%, MasterCard down 11%. So major damage. Melissa, back to you. All right, Bob. Thanks. Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. All right. There is opportunity in one of these beaten down names, according to Steve Grasso. So Steve has made his way over to the plasma to give us his fast pitch. Steve. So why don't we just pick up where Bob was actually leaving off? Square. Let's look at what they're building here. So when you, when you wind up talking about ecosystems, you think of Apple. When you look at Square, they have a $70 billion commerce ecosystem. Payments services, software. Number two, financial services. Their cash app has been outpacing Venmo. Huge deal there, but they got caught up in this Momo versus value. That's why the stock sold off, not because of any of the fundamentals have gone south. The future in this name, international expansion. Why? It's a percentage, very small percentage of their uh, uh, portfolio right now. Huge opportunities. 
That's why it's still a buy for me. If you look at some technicals, let's talk about those. So now when you gauge this, if you look at fundam fundamentals, you get the picture there. If you look at Fibonacci's, you get a different picture here, and they're both equally as bullish, even with a sell-off that we've seen recently. So you go from this low to this high, you come up with the retracement levels. It stopped basically on a dime at the 618 retracement level, so 65-ish. It's been making a series of higher lows right here if Netflix, this has been a premise for me, if Netflix reports well, all these momos off to the races again. Tim's got a question. Hey, Steve, uh, I really like this stock. I've been in it for a long time, but I'm very concerned at least both the stock action and the departure of CFO Sarah Fryer is something that actually is that the market may you know, continue to respond negatively. What do you think about her departure? So Sarah Fryer, everyone loves her. The entire space loved her, but she was never going to be CEO. There's only one Jack Dorsey. She went to become CEO somewhere else. It had nothing to do with the underlyings. From what I understand already, Tim, if the story progresses and it's something different, it's a different case. But right now, no effect on fundamentals, just a knee-jerk reaction. All right, no more questions. Time to vote. Are you buying Steve Grass's pitch on Square? Guy Adami, what do you, you start say? Start with me. I like that. So I wrote down on my little whiteboard or blackboard with the white chalk. Well, yes. I put uh -huh. big volume right. capitulation. You say, what does that mean? Is that a buy or sell? Good, I'm glad you asked me. Well, it's a buy. You saw it. Steve gave you the levels. Traded 63 million shares a day. It traded basically 70 bucks. I think you own it in earnings. Karen. Yes, just in the interest of full disclosure, my sister does work at Square. But I think it's a buy. Yeah, I, she did. Yeah. 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 Square. 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 Yeah. yeah. Very right? clever. Isn't that clever? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Tim? Uh, I'm a buyer. Uh, I'm long the stock. I actually think that what, it could be challenging. Well, it, it, yeah, it's, I'm not giving them the finger. I actually <laughs> drew like a number <laughs> one, like I'm in there, I'm buying. It's not what it looks like. It does not look like that. That's why I wanted to clarify what that yeah, was. No, yeah, glad we all, did. Boy, you know, all the trolls come out. I got to work on my out. artwork, folks. I actually, I mean, I that's going to be one of the finger that says number one. Everybody has a finger that says number one, which means that Tim is a buyer. Buys all around the horn here, but are you at home buying Grass's pitch for Square? You can vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. We will reveal the results later this hour. Plus, a new pot deal sparking a major rally in weed stocks today, and there's another event this week that could send the space even higher. We will explain when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. A major pot deal sending weed stocks blazing higher today and sparking what could be a huge week to the space. Aditi Roy's in San Francisco with uh, more on the cannabis craze. Hi, Aditi. Hi there, Melissa. The big week in the cannabis industry is kicking off with some cross-border news ahead of the Canadian legalization. Canopy Growth announcing that it will acquire the assets of EBU, a Colorado-based hemp research company, for $19 million plus 6.2 million shares. Now, the most notable part of this deal is that it marks Canopy's entry into U.S. operations. In a statement, Canopy saying the deal will complement and accelerate multiple core verticals operating under Canopy Growth's group of companies. The deal sent shares of Canopy Growth up and had other pot stocks lighting up ahead of Canada's legalization. Industry watchers are also looking ahead to the U.S. market. Analysts are responding to Representative Dana Rohrabacher's comments last week that he expects that President Trump will pursue federally legalizing medical marijuana following the midterm elections. Now, they're urging caution, noting that the White House has not confirmed the comment in the meantime, U.S. cannabis companies are also asking President Trump to change federal cannabis laws. We got a preview of this ad coming out in tomorrow's Wall Street Journal. 
It's a letter to the president from the CEO of California-based Terratech saying America is losing its competitive advantage to Canada because U.S. companies are losing out as cannabis dollars go across the border. All this as U.S. Customs and Border Protection will be holding a media call tomorrow reiterating that marijuana remains illegal federally and that federal agents will be enforcing that law at border crossings. Melissa, back to you. Aditi, thanks. Aditi Roy in San Francisco. All this bringing the U.S. one step closer to fully embracing marijuana. Right now, 31 states have legalized medical use, with nine <clears> of those, plus Washington, D.C., legalizing recreational use. And with the midterm elections right around the corner, Tim here says America's road to reefer could be hitting the next level. Before we get to that, we should note that Tim is long a number of pot names, sits on an advisory boards for three cannabis stocks. For all of Tim's disclosures, you can go to, go to uh, Fast Money, actually fast.cnbc.com. But Tim, why don't you take it away? Okay, Mel. So, right, the road to reefer. First of all, I want to point out a couple things. First of all, I, I think this is a bipartisan issue. So as much as we want to talk about it, I think it is a catalyst, and let's go here. Um, I actually think that both sides of the aisle really care about this issue, and I think are both are pushing for it. But where are we going to get full adult recreational uh, legalization? North Dakota is polling at about 80%. Right now, Michigan is polling at north of 60%. I think you have a dynamic here where you could actually see you know, that continue to develop across the country. And then as you continue to look at what else is happening on the ballot, at least, is a very significant issue on the medical side. You actually have Utah. You actually have Missouri, the show-me state, where I think also so they're very much in favor. The irony, of course, is that the Mormon church is obviously what we know about from Utah. They also, I think you can make an argument, at least the overall uh, environment over there is very productive and certainly very constructive towards full legalization. So ultimately, what does this mean for expectations? And, and you know, I want to point out that there's a number of companies that are out there that actually could continue to be beneficiaries of this. And if you look at this chart, first of all, we've got these empty glass jars to show you the U.S. market. Well, who can benefit? So we talked about Canopy this morning. There deal with Ibu. Ultimately, this is a, a, a Colorado-based research firm that helps on the genetic side. You can make an argument. Certainly, we'll be helping them with extraction. Uh, GW Pharma, we spent a lot of time talking about this company. The fact of the matter is that the FDA views what they are doing and has descheduled one of their main drugs. I actually believe that's the path we're going with a lot of biopharma in this country. MedMen had a big deal last week with PharmaCan. And again, for those people that complain about U.S. valuations, MedMen actually used an expensive currency in their stock and bought a cheaper name, which is a U.S name. And that trade, by the way, of buying up U.S. names with Canadian currency stocks, whether they're U.S. companies, MedMen's a U.S. company, uh, and, but buying companies with, you know, you went to the capital markets in Canada and actually bought other things. That consolidation is going on right now. Charlotte's Web, this is a name in the CBD oil nutraceutical uh, wellness area that's also a major U.S. player in terms of distribution of CBD, which is something that we all know is a huge total addressable market. It's growing 55 percent. So, Mel, a lot of opportunities. Karen has a question. Yeah, not to throw cold water in your bong or anything, but this deal <laughs> announced today for Whoa. Canopy was $325 million deal, and yet the stock, the acquirer stock, went up over $2 billion. Seems a little bit frothy, no? I think there's a couple things going on. First of all, uh, by the way, Bruce Linton was at one of Jim Cramer's events over the weekend where I also was on a panel right after they spoke. The alignment between Constellation Brands and Canopy is unbelievable. The way these two companies are talking about dominating the world here, I think, has a lot to do with the headlines that are coming through today. This Ibu deal, um, I think, is very creative, but it shows that they are working very hard on the research side, that this is a, a place where the science side of this continues to, to outperform. But let's face it, big institutions are just getting involved here, and if you're going to play in one name, this is a name that you can make an argument on valuation, you can make an argument on balance sheet, you can make an argument on partnership, and i actually not surprised to see the stock move today. All right. Thanks for that, Tim.
Thank and you. See more on cannabis stocks. Still ahead. If you can't get enough of the potray, Mad Money has you covered. Check out the Kramer cam, and you can see Jim there talking to the MedMen CEO. Talk about MedMen, about all the latest deals in the space. That is at the top of the hour. Coming up on Fast, will the recent bout of volatility throw cold water on the hot IPO market? Rick Heitzman, an early investor in names like Airbnb and Pinterest, will be here to explain. We are live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Much more Fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The recent market turmoil not just shaking up some of the biggest stocks, it also has shaken up the IPO market. Leslie Pickers back at headquarters with more. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. There's a recipe for the perfect market conditions to going public. Low volatility, rising equities. And last week, if you recall, we saw the exact opposite of that. So it's no surprise we saw the most number of IPOs withdrawn last week than any other week this year. According to DealLogic, five IPOs were pulled globally, two in Hong Kong, one in Madrid, one in Lisbon, and one in Helsinki. These include deals that were already in the middle of their roadshows marketing shares to investors. On top of that, two other companies postponed their deals before even getting to the roadshow stage. Those included Lease Plan, which was floating shares in Amsterdam and Brussels, and Tencent Music, which also was spooked by the market turmoil. The company is postponing its roadshow until November, the Wall Street Journal reported, due to the recent sell-off in the markets. Now, large price swings in particular can make it very difficult to price deals, making it more likely that the underwriters and the company agree on a price that, in the long run, isn't actually suitable. And stock market declines, like we saw last week, can spook prospective investors because the risk-off mode makes them less inclined to actually buy into a company's debut, which can be among the more risky areas of the market, Melissa. All right, Leslie, thanks. Leslie Picker at headquarters. For more, let's bring in Rick Heitzman. He's a founder and managing director of First Mark Capital and was an early investor in Airbnb and Pinterest. Rick, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me back. Um, obviously, market conditions are important for IPO. So how would you characterize these market conditions? And if you were advising a startup on whether or not the time is now, would now be a time? Now is the time. I think that uh, this might be temporary. From a startup plan, we think in longer time horizons. We're a holder for eight to ten years of companies that go public. So a few days of volatility shouldn't really impact that. We're thinking about a year, two years out, the lockup's over, and is the company appropriately priced? So when you're thinking about some of these IPOs, are they selling 15%, 20% of the public? I mean, it's, that must weigh It's usually smaller. We were right here last week uh, with Upwork. And they, they sold a much uh, smaller percent. Companies are staying private longer and actually tend to be profitable or at least self-sustaining. So they don't need the financing element of these IPOs. Were you nervous? I mean, you said you were with the company last week yes. that went public. Yes. Was that hand-wringing for you? It, it's not really hand-wringing. I think uh -huh. you prepare the company, you, you do your best, and you assume the market will take care of itself like any other great big project you're working on. Rick, do you sense that we've gone through a structural change, though, in the market and how companies are treating the capital market cycle? You guys are playing a very different role than you might have even been able to a decade ago. Is it, is it different today than it was for, for private companies? It, much, much different. Companies are staying private much longer, maybe two to three times longer. Yeah. If you think about Microsoft and Cisco were private companies for two, three years. Now you're looking at the next generation of great companies being private for 10, 12 years. And what that means is 
there's less volatility when they come out. They have a pretty good sense of their revenue, pretty good sense of their expenses, and mm -hmm. oftentimes are profitable. Yeah. Therefore, both less risk and less reward for public market investors. Rick, is it as clear or as simple as the analysis of looking at international companies versus domestic companies? International markets have been extremely challenged. Does that pull forward, in your opinion, all of the domestic need for an IPO because they want to capture what could be the top in the U.S. market versus what could be the low in the international market? Uh, I'll start by saying I know almost nothing about the international market. So, but th saying that, I know that people are drawn towards some of the biggest names of the domestic market, names that people have talked about uh, being potential 1920 IPO candidates like Uber, and people want to participate in the market leaders, and they've looked at the disruption, the names like uh, Twitter and Facebook have caused in the last couple years. They want to participate in those potential 10x IPOs. We're looking at the stock market. I'm not asking you to play stock market, but are you seeing anything from where your vantage point that concerns you in terms of what's happening here in the U.S. equity market? Uh, the only thing that we have not seen yet, and I saw in a cycle in 1999 and saw it to a lesser extent in 07, is poor quality companies going public. And we have not yet seen that. If you even you look at the smaller IPOs of the last couple months, there were still solid companies with good business models on a path to profitability, if not already profitable. So you're not seeing a degradation of quality, which I think symbolizes the end of a cycle. All right, Rick, great to see you. Thanks, Thanks for your time. For Rick Heitzman, Thank you. First Mark Capital. Uh, in terms of what you've seen on the floor, you've seen a lot of high-profile IPOs, and they seem to do quite well. Even yeah, I, I don't see any slowdown. Obviously, the volatility in the marketplace is always something that goes into the calculus of an IPO or not. But I haven't seen any slowdown in IPOs that have been rolling out. You will see the IPOs that are coming from like a Tencent that's doing a spin out or spin off. Their markets have been under pressure. So you could see why they'll postpone those. But I haven't seen anything with the domestic U.S. market. We often talk about IPOs not only because eventually they will become stocks that we talk about, on this show, but also because they could be indicators of the overall market in market conditions. Is that your thought in asking Rick the question? It is a thought. I understand exactly what Rick is saying, but it's always, it's never the same as it was 9907. Right. So I don't think necessarily what he's saying, I don't think it has that much impact on the broader market, on my negativity in the broader market. All right. Up next, final trades. We have a new addition to the Fast Money family. Oh, Baby Evan Thomas was born yesterday afternoon, weighing in at seven pounds, two ounces, 19 and a half inches long. Congrats to parents Nancy and Mike. Nancy's the one who's usually here on headsets, telling us which cameras to look at, keeping these guys we in line. We miss her. Yeah, uh, look we at miss her already. Spin -off. She's in a better nice place job. right now. Congratulations, right. Nancy. Switching gears here. <laughs> Kill oh, that man. music. Uh, drum roll here. You know what Jack Dorsey and Steve Grasso have in common? They're both having the time Ooh, of their lives. America is buying. See his pitch? Wow. Square. Undefeated still. Undefeated. I've For never you? lost one of these. Are you serious? No. That's going to wow. I'm not, I'm not serious. Uh, time, for the, time for the final trade, Tim. Well, FedEx has been losing a lot over the last couple of weeks. It's actually down about 25%. This is a fantastic company that I don't see any breakdown in their growth. FedEx. Karen. Yes, we haven't talked about it in a long time, but Solar Edge. I think this one's bottomed out. Wow. Yes. Grasso. Kronos, up big after hours. I'm still long. Kronos. Guy. Cute baby. Super yeah. cute. No scale, though. You can't tell how big the kid is. It's 19 and, and a half inches long. Oh, I, I just you told said you, it, but it's hard to tell when you, you said it. It's very cute. Final trade. Discovery place. Communications breaking out. All right. That does it for us here on Fast. back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. 
Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.